Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. With us now, Karen Ubelhart of Bloomberg Intelligence. Karen, you have followed the collapse of General Electric. Mr. Kulp has to rebuild. What is order number one for Lawrence Kulp to Danner High's General Electric? I think the first thing, he's going to try to take care of the cash bleeding, and he did that with the announcement of the dividend, which was not a surprise. Um, he's going to work on deleveraging. Um, the big problem is power, and he's got to move quick What's on What's your view power. on the strategy of power, the business plan of failed decisions? Um, he's going to split it into two businesses. There are a couple of small businesses I think he might divest. That's not the big right. problem. Gas is the big problem. He's got to shrink it and shrink it fast. It's fixed cost primarily. Okay. I want to go right now over to the PowerPoint. This is the most simplistic PowerPoint. And what you need to know, folks, is forget about the headlines of dividends or that. A little hard to see, but this is what adults look at on global uh, Wall Street. The idea of cash flows and the cash balance walk that GE has to do. More than anything, frankly, like Ginny Rometty at IBM, he has to maintain an A credit rating. Is that at risk if he doesn't get his cash use right? It, it, it is. It is at risk. Um, he's got to get, uh, and I and the rating agencies have signaled that they're concerned. The dividend is a big statement. It's yes. frankly, for, you know, he'll save about almost four billion dollars. What is the revenue persistency that will lead to stability in cash flows that keeps an A rating? Uh, well, he's, they're doing better than expected in aerospace. That's a very big business. They're big doing numbers. very strong, uh, uh, well Oil in healthcare. Oil and gas look almost okay. Yeah, okay, uh, yeah, uh, that's stabilizing. And the other uh, big business is healthcare, which did very well. That, Do you they're going to pay the revenue? bills. Jeff Vimel and Jack Welch loved organic revenue growth. What's the organic revenue growth Karen Ubelhart can do on GE right now? Uh, you know, they're going to do um, overall low single digits, 2, 3, 4%. I don't know. I didn't look at the actual uh, number fair, yet. But, fair, yeah. but the answer is it's going to be 1, 2, 3%. Yeah, it's not going to be it's, high. It, is that enough for Lawrence Culp to get this thing out to two years? Well, aerospace has got its own cycle. It's it's doing very well, and it's got 22% margins, and healthcare does too. So there's okay. not that much. That, okay. Those two big businesses where they're making their money now are not really okay. economically Karen, sensitive. thank you so much. A good briefing here on the news of General Electric, of course, one of the iconic American companies and what you need to know is a headline the dividend from 12 cents to 1 cents as well Defining the month of October, though, you can do it many, many ways. But it has been volatile, that is for sure. And yesterday was no different as U.S. equity markets staged their sharpest reversal since 2015, leaving the S&P 500 very much on the brink of its second 10% correction of 2018. So what is going on? Let's talk to Jason Trennett, shall we? Strategus Research Chairman and Chief Executive Officer. Good morning to you, Jason. What are you telling clients this morning? Well, listen. I think we're we're telling them that it's probably, in some ways, it's probably too uh, too late to sell. Might be a little too early to buy uh, if you're a trader. I think if you're an investor, my own opinion uh, is that uh, there are some very attractive, uh, uh, you know, valuations in the cyclical parts of the market, and there's nothing that we've seen that's changed as far as the fundamental equity. 
fundamental backdrop for the economy or equities. So, um, again, this thing has a little bit of a life of its own. Uh, we're watching technicals probably more than we, we normally would. We do a very good job here with Chris Verone in doing that. But I'm watching them a little bit more closely than I normally would. Um, so fundamentals still very strong. But, uh, this uh, again, this correction has a little bit of a life of its own right now. Let's just talk about technicals a little bit, Jason. What kind of levels are key for you at the moment? Well, again, Chris Verone, uh, who does our technical analysis here, he's looking uh, at 2575 uh, using round numbers is kind of his uh, his number where he'd be an aggressive buyer. Uh, that seems to make some sense uh, uh, for for me. Uh, for me, uh, again, you know, I, I'm more of a fundamental person that uses technicals. Uh, it's a very important part of my process. But um, I, I think, again, given what's happening from a fundamental perspective, uh, you want to probably be a, be an aggressive buyer. Uh, probably anywhere between uh, where we are today, which is about 2640. And, and 2575. Can we talk about the pockets of the equity market that you would be buying, which sectors? Because tech has been really beaten up, and that's where the leadership came from over the last few years, Jason. Yeah, you know, it depends, uh, Jonathan. I would make a distinction between, you know, what kinds of tech that you're you're talking about. Yeah, I I think that there are real opportunities in in what is now the, just considered the tech gigs sector, uh, which is really more um, you know, more has to do, in my opinion, with enterprise uh, spending on, on technology as opposed to, let's say, the new communication sector, which was just created at the end of last month, uh, just in time for all this, which is more social media. Uh, in my opinion. And the more uh, we're quite bullish on capital spending, uh, and we don't think that we're in right. late in the business cycle at all. Uh, so I have more of a focus on on places where uh, businesses are going to be spending. So semiconductors, in particular, look uh, to me really beaten up, and uh, I think they're real attractive opportunities there. Jason, one of your charms—he doesn't have that many charms, John—but Jason Trenard has a few charms. <laughs> I typically find him quite charming. And, and one of the charming charms. He, does he like AC Milan? I didn't even think I, of that. I doubt he likes AC Milan. Roma. 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 He's okay. Roma. That's south Roma. of AC Milan, right? That is well Got it. Okay. Exactly. Jason, yeah. one of your charms is a student of history. In the last 28 hours, I'm going to say 30 hours, we have seen two massive blue chip stocks begin to think about not having an A credit rating, international business machines, and a small electric company from Schenectady. Yeah. How do you avoid those debacles? How, does, how do our listeners avoid X number of years of IBM mediocrity or the collapse of Generous Electric? How do you do it? Well, you know, and and I would add, you know, another uh, another icon, American icon from a couple of weeks ago, which was uh, which is Sears. Uh, yeah. Okay, I'll so go there. You have, you know, so we have, uh, and and of course, you know, General uh, General Electric uh, is not uh, is not Sears, right? So um, there's nothing, um, you know, uh, nothing close to those things. Having said that, I I think there's it it's not causal, but it's more than coincidence in my opinion, uh, that Sears went out of business or declared bankruptcy at roughly the same time the Fed stopped having negative real Fed, fu uh, negative real Fed funds rate. Right. 
uh, stopped having a negative uh, interest rate. And to me, I think we've been um, we've been spoiled in some ways uh, by the new normal. Uh, we've been spoiled to the extent to which there's not there hasn't been a lot of volatility, and there it, it's been right. and everyone gets a trophy type of uh, capital market. Uh, that's going to change now, and, and I think the mistakes of the past in terms of um, in terms of empire building and in exactly terms of that's right. of debt are, are, going, are going to come home. You know, they're going knew, to come home and, and have okay. a problem now. John, I knew a guy that likes Roma would talk about empire building. Of that's course. what this is all about. <laughs> it's, I, I talked to Hildebrand about this of BlackRock. It's about Davos, man. Yeah, but let's stop talking about the American icons of yesterday and talk about the American icons of today. The likes of Netflix, who have got used to an environment where you can borrow from the debt market very, very cheaply, you can burn through cash, and you can just aim for growth. Is that story going to change and not just affect the American icons of yesterday? Forget the cities of this world. I want to talk about the Netflix of this world, the Teslas of this world. Your thoughts on that, Jason? Yeah, no, Jonathan, I think it's a great point, and I think, uh, again, this has been, and I think the Fed, with the best of intentions, absolutely the best of intentions, I think created an enormous distortion in uh, both the economy and the and the capital markets. Um, the the interesting thing to me is that a lot of the um, you know Netflix and Tesla obviously are public companies. To me, a lot of the the excesses, believe it or not, are more in the private markets than the than the, than the public markets, because the vast majority of of uh, of the public markets aren't very very good shape uh, from a financial uh, perspective. Having said that, uh, I think the cost of capital is the capital is going to be rationed, and the cost of capital is clearly going to be higher uh, in the midst of uh, a lack of accommodative monetary policy and a very expansive fiscal and regulatory policy. Uh, to me, it's it's um, it's yeah. going to go back to you know investing being more of an art form uh, as opposed okay. to just plowing money into passive investments. Which conglomerate do you like right now? Which you know, big company consulted by three consultancies on buying the next big thing. Is there a name you actually like, Mr. Trenner? Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna pass on that uh, for for the benefit of your listeners uh, and myself uh, and you guys too. I'm, I'm gonna I'm not uh, much of a stock picker, and and I probably have to get regulatory compliance to do that. But I, listen, I I'll tell you this: I the the places where um, I'm I have money to work personally mm -hmm. and uh, what I feel strongly about. The sectors I like are industrials. I like uh, technology, as we said, more enterprise-oriented capital spending technology. I like energy quite a bit. Uh, and uh, we like uh, financials, so industrials, energy, so, uh, financials, uh, and technology. John wants to, to get one more thing. John wants to get one more thing in here of non-importance. Go ahead. Well, actually, it's to pick up on something he said that you missed, which was mm -hmm. active management. The days yeah. of participating and winning are over. Um, Jason, is that essentially what you're saying? Because this year is the first year in a long time where cross-asset we're set to see losses across the board. And I just wonder if the days of getting the participation award, as my colleague Cameron Kreis have said, uh, over the last 24 hours is done. It's <laughs> over. Yeah, no, I think that's that's uh, that's absolutely true. And and again, I think you've created a lot of uh, again the Fed with the best of intentions created a lot of distortions uh, there. And you're going to have very divergent. Um, you're going to have a lot um, a lot more dispersion in returns, a lot less correlation in returns uh, as capital becomes uh -huh. rationed.
All I can focus on is not the Red Sox parade tomorrow, but February 3rd, 2019, Roma visits AC Milan. Yeah, I think the right. two of you. I, I'm fairly confident. In Milan, I'm fairly confident Roma's got can, that. Can but we, I'd love to be there. Can we like set that up for a remote? It's February. You know, Milan I, listen, in I'll February. Be, if you guys, if you guys are paying. And, well, and I was thinking so we'll of expensing it to there. Strategus. Go talk to Red Keeper of the Amex and see what he I says. Jason, thank you so much. Jason Trenner uh, has to go with Strategus Research Partners. Why don't you bring in handsome Bob? He's an elder statesman. We decided that earlier this He is morning. a fantastic... Elder statesman at Nomura. He is a fantastic guest. Bob Janjua joining us now. Nomura Senior Independent Client Advisor of elder Global statesman. Markets. Uh, can we call you an elder statesman, yes, Bob? We did. Do you we like said. that? Do you approve of that? <laughs> I'm not sure if my wife would approve of it. Yeah, I don't think she would either. I don't think we should do this to Bob, Tom. She might be listening. Let's jump in. So, Bob, let's talk about this market. We do face the very real prospect of two 10% corrections in a given year and pretty much every single asset class in the red by the end of 2018. Outside of recessionary conditions, what's the signal that comes from that for you, Bob? Yeah, look, I mean, I think there's two things. I think, first of all, I think maybe looking backwards a little bit, I think perhaps uh, the the run-up in 2017, uh, uh, particularly post the, the Trump uh, 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 victory day, um, I think was perhaps uh, had gotten a little bit ahead of itself, and I think we took some of that out at the beginning of the year. I think since then, I think uh, what we're beginning to do is price in future policy uh, and future trends, and I think the issues are around, you know, obviously the fair DCB, not just the cost of money, but the availability of money. The trade issue is, is playing out a lot more, a lot more harshly and more difficultly than people had anticipated initially. Um, and of course, you've got this uncertainty not just in Europe, but also around the midterms in, in the US. So I think um, I think there's two different things there. One is somewhat backward-looking, taking out some of the excesses. But now forward-looking, I think we're beginning to worry about perhaps the uh, uh, post easy money world. So let's talk about that, Bob, the cost and availability of money. Typically, the towel, so to speak, is in credit. And sort of the last bastion of stability or resiliency in the US, at least, has been US high yield. Are you starting to see some cracks there, Bob? Yeah, look, I think uh, I think initially, uh, and we, and you can, we can almost say this to some extent for, for the global high yield market, i.e. EM and, uh, and Europe, but clearly EM is more systemic. I think we've had a bunch of idiosyncratic issues, which I think over the course of this year, most market players were, were, were keen to kind of uh, 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 <clears throat> sign off as purely idiosyncratic. I think as the year's gone on, as we've, as we're beginning to see generalized squeezes around global growth, global orders, all these kind of things, um, we're now beginning to enter the realms of perhaps slightly more systemic issues. Uh, and I think in this context, uh, personally for me, I think European high yield, despite the fact that I'm more worried about Europe as a place, European high yield looks okay because the issue, the quality of issues has generally been yeah. pretty good. Um, I think U.S. high yield um, and EM high yield are where we've had, I think, very speculative issuance. Uh, and that's the part right. of the world that worries me uh, uh, going forward. Bob, how do glide paths change when we have tangible real rates? I would suggest we're not even to the word tangible real rates. When we get there, a lot changes, doesn't it? 
Yeah, for sure, for sure. I mean, I think uh, I think we're getting there. Uh, I think obviously the market is trying to figure out whether what Mr. Powell has told us is going to take us into that into that zone of uh, you know, positive real rates. Um, look, what, historically, when we get this kind of period of positive real rates. Um, you know, initially we kind of sign it off as a, as, a, as a positive because it must mean the economy is thriving. But I think clearly we all know that since 2006-7, we've been in a different kind of cycle. Um, and I think going forward, uh, as the price of money becomes real and as the availability continues to squeeze, yeah. more, the most speculative business models, whether you're an individual, a company or a government, uh, become vulnerable. Um, and we've seen that kind of play out a little bit, you know, this year with parts of Argentina, right. Venezuela, Turkey, parts of the EM world. But I think as that trend continues, we're going to expose more and more of the vulnerable business right. models um, that have thrived in this last 10 years because money was free or less than and, free. And, right? and John, what's so important there that Mr. Genjua said is the word price and that we don't look at yield as price, but pros look at it as the price of money which is not a small thing, and it has evaporated over the last some nine years. Bob, I like the concept of a speculative business model, and then you talked about sovereigns. Are there any speculative yeah. business models in the developed world that you do think could actually be exposed that central banks can't contain? Well, look, I mean, I think, uh, I think in the, uh, obviously the emerging world is a bit different. I think in a developed world, let me, let me put it this way, I, I'm probably less concerned about Japan, and not because I work at Nomura, but because I've, I've spent a lot more my career thinking about Japan and how yeah. it's going to end. I'm probably less concerned about Japan's end game um, uh, right now than, than I used to be. Um, and I'm probably more concerned about the uh, end game for parts of Europe. I think in terms of the U.S., um, it, it, the dollar buys the U.S. an awful lot of seniorage. Um, so, you know, the idea that U.S. credit quality is at serious risk into the next recession, uh, I can buy the argument, but actually, ultimately, because the whole world is always short dollars, uh, I think the U.S. can get away well, with it. I think Europe, <clears throat> Europe and parts of the Eurozone are the vulnerable blobs still. I, I mean, technically, and I'm looking at the Bloomberg Dollar Index, folks, which is an aggregation of a lot of different series and pairs. And what, what, is, the, what is the ability to go through the early 2017 peaks in strong dollar. I mean, I know it's not the official Nomura call, but Bob Jandua, if we get that strong dollar, what does that signal to markets? Yeah, look, so I think, I think look, I do, I personally think the dollar will keep strengthening over the next three to six months. Um, I think that'll be partly driven by uh, the, the relative tightening story in the U.S., which I think will continue despite the pressure on Mr. Powell. Um, uh, with relatively loose policy settings elsewhere, I, notably in Japan, um, but I think you know not as loose as they were. And equal, obviously, Europe is moving moving slightly tighter. Um, I think uh, I think going forward, uh, dollar strength uh, may not be as sustainable. Um, but look, for the period that the dollar is strong, ultimately what this is telling me is that there's a lot more demand for dollars than there is supply. Um, and, and in that world, you know, U.S. entities would always get, I think, uh, access to dollars uh, over and above the ability of for, for foreign entities to get access to those dollars. Hence the concerns around the EM 
uh, and perhaps hence the growing concerns around some of the uh, non-US uh, high-yield markets. Bob, your time to us is really valuable, but one final quick question, if you can, in the minute we have left. Your number one conviction yep. call right now, Bob, what is it? For next year or for this year? For the next 12 months, as that. For the next 12 months, we are going to get, I think, a fantastic opportunity to buy duration in the U.S. at levels which may not be attractive on a historical basis, but in this new world that we're in, I think buying 10-year treasuries at something around 3.5%, uh, I, we'll, I think we'll see 10-year. I think the risk is 10-year treasuries are trading closer to 2.5% 12 to 18 months forward. Bob Jandua, I wish we'd started with that. That's my fault. Namura Senior, independent and client advisor of Global Markets. I failed. But a great conversation with Bob. Always great to get his insights on financial markets. Worldwide. Yeah, and, you know, there was what we, I love about this was earlier with Chris Turner of ING. I mean, there, there's a real difference of opinion out there as the global proxy dollar yen. I mean, to a lot of our listeners, it's like, oh, okay, dollar yen, so what? That's like the litmus paper of the system. And John, there's some real variance of where people. I've think heard we're this going. argument that Bob just made though on duration before, and I think it's really interesting that your opportunity to get duration in the United States with a coupon north of three percent might not be there <clears throat> over the next ten years. I've heard that, and I think it's really, really interesting that we're low on historical levels, of course, but over the next ten years, this might look high, and I find that fascinating. Right now, John, can you believe there's a jobs day on Friday? I know. You know, it's like it's almost news, November. The news flow is extraordinary. The October's been wild. I mean, what what is it down nine percent? Like generally, we are, October. we are on course for our biggest monthly drop on the S and P five hundred since two thousand and nine. Yeah, yeah. So uh, it's a good time to catch up with Jim O'Sullivan of High Frequency Economics as we really tilt the jobs day. Jim, I think the first thing I do when I look at the the the, the screen. We're really not mentally used to 3.7% unemployment, are we? Um, hi, Tom. Good morning. Well, <laughs> if you were around in the 1960s, I guess you might remember it. But other than that, no, this is uh, back to that period. I, I mean, John, I just 3.7%, it's, it's, it's Eisenhower-like. Yeah, and we still haven't seen the wage growth accelerate in the way that people Eisenhower thought. Eisenhower was a president I, uh, I, in the early 50s. I, I recall from my um, my history lessons yeah, very good. unlike you i wasn't there for the um uh, yeah well, I, you know, I was there yeah um jim uh, o'sullivan we've got to say that you are one of the most uh, accurate forecasters on payrolls out there and i'm just wondering for our listeners what you look for in the data that allows you to anticipate a very volatile jobs number um well john i mean uh, it, yes it does jump around a lot month to month although when you put it in perspective when there's 100 and uh, 40 million jobs out there, a 100,000 miss is uh, is 0.1%. And you think some of the other numbers we see, like durable goods or, uh, I mean, or even retail sales, how much they jump around month to month. But, yeah, I mean, people do get excited about 100,000 miss, <laughs> even though it's pretty small. But, um, I mean, in general, I mean, I always come back to certainly the underlying trend being signaled by jobless claims. And to the extent they're still very low, I think the broad message is that the trend in employment growth hasn't really changed significantly. And of course, the trend has been basically 200,000 per month, which is quite strong relative to demographics, more than enough to yeah, keep that unemployment rate coming down. It's really strong, Jim, and it's very much anticipated by the consensus 
economist view. I mean, several years ago, many people would say to Tom and I that this can't carry on. It has. How? Um, well, of course, ultimately, it, it, I mean, what the economist Herb Stein used to say, um, that I'm paraphrasing, that what, what's not sustainable will not be sustained. And ultimately, yeah, we can't keep growing 200,000 a month, unemployment can't keep on falling, and ultimately it will slow. I mean, the question is, what, what does it take to, for that to happen? And I think that's what the Fed is trying to figure out. The Fed's trying to slow down employment growth, so they're trying to get financial conditions less accommodative. I mean, they want to do that kind of in a smooth way. They don't want to suddenly see the okay. stock market up 20%, but they want to slow down employment growth, and it hasn't happened yet. I mean, there's that dreaded word that we talked to Bob Janjua uh, about, uh, me in a less graceful way than Jim O'Sullivan, smooth. Is your economics, Jim O'Sullivan, going to give us smooth reaction functions, or, <laughs> or do we get jump conditions around rising real rates? Well, I mean, it, there's always going to be volatility, of course. It's going to, not, not going to be possible to forecast that on a month-to-month -month basis. But ultimately, I mean, ultimately, the Fed will get the economy to slow. I mean, the question is, is it more of a soft landing or a hard landing? And the, the, quick, the sooner it, it slows, I think, the, the, the less of a risk of a hard landing. But I mean, at this point, that's the goal, to slow it down. And um, it's not clear to me that they've accomplished their goal at this point. So certainly the trend in employment growth still looks quite strong. I think we'll probably get another pretty strong employment report on Friday. And, um, I mean, John, in terms of the, the, the wage numbers, yeah, they're still tame, but yeah. they, are, they are moving up. I think we are seeing evidence here that the tight labor market is putting upward pressure, and we'll probably see a three-handle on the average early earnings number in terms of year over year on Friday, which we haven't seen during this cycle so far. Which I imagine um, might not be taken well by financial markets, Jim, because we're in this weird position now where the market's starting to view the Fed as if it will carry on until something breaks. And I think this is pretty fascinating at the moment, Jim. Reading between yeah. the lines at the moment, you don't think the Fed's going to back off even with this volatility? Well, I mean, obviously, th there's no plan of doing anything next week, of course. So, I mean, the question is, what are they looking at in December? If they're looking at an S&P that's down 10% from the high, I'd say big deal. I mean, obviously, if it's down 25%, that's a different story. But, uh, I mean, yeah. so we'll see where it all ends up. But, I mean, I think they're quite happy for the equity market to be flat to down 10% and, and just stop there. But um, we'll, we'll see what happens by December. I mean, there's no expectation, no. of course, that they do anything next week. Jim O'Sullivan, thank you so much for getting us started on our Jobs Day coverage. Right now, Kevin Cirilli, our chief Washington correspondent. Kevin, all of us wandered through Dred Scott, 1857. We watched Daniel Day-Lewis uh, in uh, the movie Lincoln. And then we vault forward on the 14th Amendment into the 20th century. We're now in the 21st century, and the President of the United States really went after it uh, this morning with Axios. Are we all going to have to brush up on the 14th Amendment? Yeah, and I think we should all pull out Doris Kearns Goodwin's book. You know, I mean, I think I think it really has a lot of good examples. Look, Tom, I, I just left the White House, and here's what I can say. This 
was a question that caught the president off guard, but it wasn't something that's new. And I don't Agreed. think in the short term that you're <clears throat> going to hear the, the administration talking about some elaborate rollout of this policy change. I mean, you got to go back to 2015, Tom, when the president made these controversial comments to begin with after the escalator speech <laughs> when he announced his candidacy to drive this issue as right. a wedge issue from the other Republicans to put former Florida Governor Jeb Bush on defense. And very quickly, I would just note, look, we're a week out from the midterms. He's trying to rally the base, rally folks to get to the polls, and they think this immigration issue is going to help them in rural conservative districts. Do you anticipate an executive order at some point by the president, the people standing behind the desk, and he does a thing where he holds it up? Is he going to do that on birthright? It's not going to happen today, and I would be stunned if it happened tomorrow. But I think eventually something like that could okay. happen. But on the flip side of that, go back to the earlier in his term and what happened at the airports following his executive orders and the Stephen Miller executive orders of, of, of yesteryear. And go back to, you know, the, the second point that I would make is that the impact this is going to have right. on the Supreme Court. This, is, this would ultimately end up in the Supreme Court. And what's Justice Kavanaugh going to say about this? Kevin Cirilli, could you speak a little bit about the deployment of troops on the Mexico-U.S.? 5,200. Yeah, because I was, I mean, I'm sure I've got this wrong, but I was under the impression that there is a law that specifically relates to the use of active duty U.S. military operating on U.S. soil. Well, President Trump is set to deploy 5,200 troops to the southern border uh, and uh, the southwest border specifically. And this is with specific regards to this caravan that has gone on. And, and look, I mean, this is the largest, largest deployment of active duty U.S. troops since the response to the earthquake in Haiti. So there is some precedent when there is a, a, a type of— um, a, Yeah, but that was a humanitarian I effort on you, the— I hear you. Right? But, but correct. And so the critics of this are, are suggesting that because of that, they should, you know, that this would need some type of approval. The bottom line is that, again, one week from the midterms, the president trying to, to strike what he is now even calling a nationalistic tone on the issue of immigration. And that's why you're seeing this aggressive rhetoric on uh, immigration. It's why you're seeing at his rallies, eight of which he's going to have between now and Election Day, uh, the, the signs that say finish the wall, not just build the wall now, but finish the wall. This this is a rallying cry for conservatives. And, 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 you know, we were reporting on this yesterday in the Kentucky 3rd District about the 6th District. I apologize. I said it wrong again. Kentucky 6th District, where you have uh, a neck-and-neck race between a, a three-time incumbent, Andy Barr, in a rural Kentucky uh, against a, for, a, a former fighter pilot, Amy McGrath, this, a, a Democrat. And this nationalization yeah. of the race and the issue of immigration is something that they're trying to, to seize on. Right. No, I understand all that, and I understand the political dynamics, but I was under the impression, maybe you can disabuse me of this, but there's a federal statute, statute, posi comitatis, right? Yes, yes. Uh, and, and this is why, again, I think you're yeah. seeing 
criticism from from Democrats right. as well as others well, uh, who who are, right. are really trying to to to, right. to really raise these concerns. Pazzi Comitatus, that was on Santana's third album, Caravan. <laughs> um, I, uh, Kevin Cirilli, I want to talk about Doylestown, Pennsylvania. Yes. Uh, Kevin Robillard writes this up in HuffPost. It's a great race. Democrat Scott Wallace actually may win, and this is on the edge of hoity-toity Bucks County. He talks about there's a Panera Bread there. There's a Whole Foods 18 miles away. That's where I went tell, to high school. I know. That's why I'm bringing it up. I mean, tell me about home Cirilli turf. Is it going to be, if I'm elected free rolling rock? Well, I could talk Pennsylvania politics all, until I'm blue in the face, quite literally. And look, Pennsylvania's first district uh, is is really, really, you know, uh, it could be a bellwether of sorts because you've got uh, Fitzpatrick against Wallace. Yeah. And this is more of the, the collar counties, as they're called, outside of Philadelphia. I'm from Delco. Then you've got Bucks Co., Bucks County, Montgomery County. Those are the more elite ones, uh, more so than, than Delco. So this is interesting because of what we've seen in the redistricting. And it's also interesting because Look, if a Democrat wants to be in the White House in 2020, there is no way they can lose Pennsylvania the way that Hillary Clinton right. lost Pennsylvania for the first time. So a what's the dynamic right now? Come on, you're going home on the weekend, and you're only going home to get mom's cooking and free Philadelphia Eagles uh, street laundry. Okay, laundry. I get it. Yeah. Sure. Laundry as well. Okay, what's what do you see on the ground? Trade. I mean, you've got to remember that there's refineries in south in southeastern Pennsylvania, and you've got to remember that the the energy sector. And so these are the type of workers, quite frankly, that decided between uh, that previously voted for Barack Obama and then voted for Donald Trump. And so for someone like Scott Wallace uh, uh, to to really the Democrat. Be- a Democrat to be really honing in on the issue of being a bit more um, level-headed in terms of his rhetoric against someone like Fitzpatrick, you know, I think that that's really the okay. tone that they're, that they're, that they're striking uh, to see. Yeah. Re- listen to Santana's third album. It was awesome. Kevin Cirilli, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.